in the book of Amos, chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 6 through 13. Hey, Cody, I'm having a little trouble hearing myself. Can you turn me up just a little bit? Thank you, buddy. If you were worried that uh, this week we were going to stop talking about sin and judgment and repentance and destruction, don't worry. Your fears are relieved. We're right back in it, the book of Amos. <clears throat> Let me begin by reading the text. And then we will dive in together. Amos chapter 4, starting in verse 6. <clears throat> the Lord says through the prophet Amos, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water. It would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt, I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and it is perfectly good for our lives. Amen? Amen. U.S. Senators, TBN personalities, and backwood preachers alike have all said that natural disasters like hurricanes have come upon this United States of America as a result of her sinful ways. Are they right? Joy Pullman certainly thinks so, writing about these phenomena in a 2017 issue of The Federalist. Pullman writes the following. The Bible makes it very clear that natural disasters are a direct consequence of sin. So in one sense, it is accurate to say Christianity does teach that, quote, gay sex causes hurricanes, end quote, and that divorce causes hurricane, and that theft causes hurricanes, or insert whatever sin you want because they all cause hurricanes. Well, on the one hand, I very much want to applaud Ms. Pullman for her desire to say what she thinks the Bible says, even if it doesn't sit right with our modern sensibilities. On the other hand, I'd very much like to sit down with Ms. Pullman and ask her how she gets from God judges sinners, which I certainly affirm to be true, which I think we see in this text that we're studying together this morning, to the way that God judges sinners is by sending natural disasters on them. If I ever did get the chance to sit down and have that conversation with her, I imagine she might open up her Bible, hopefully that would be step number one, and she might point to texts like the text that we have read here together this morning. She might look at this and point to it and say, see, this is how God works. But I'm not so sure that she's rightly understood how all the pieces of this puzzle fit together. I want to be clear that no Bible-believing Christian should say that God doesn't punish people for their sins. He absolutely does. He does it in the afterlife and he does it here on earth. Nor should any Bible-believing Christian say that God doesn't communicate in some ways at certain times, for his own good reasons, through things like natural disasters. He does. We see it quite clearly in this morning's text. And the examples could be multiplied. It is not wrong to say that God uses, even that God causes, natural disasters and other things like those for his own wise purposes. 
But where we usually go wrong is how we interpret these events, how we try to put the pieces of the puzzle together. So I think if we understand this morning's text well, I think we'll have a good working paradigm for how to understand and interpret such events in light of God's self-revelation. That's a a bold claim, but uh, hopefully by the time we're done together, you'll see that I've delivered. Lord, give me grace. I've got three points for you this morning. Point number one, the providence of God. Point number two, the faithfulness of God. And point number three, the fear of God. The providence of God, the faithfulness of God, and the fear of God. Uh, Let me just give you a little heads up as well. This morning's uh, sermon, it is going to be glued to the text, but most of the text work is going to come in point number two. So if you feel like we're getting deep into the sermon without spending too much time looking at our Bibles, I'm aware of that. We just kind of have to lay some groundwork in point number one. Okay. Uh, Providence... Uh, And point number one, the providence of God. Providence is a word that we don't really use that much anymore. But at one point in time, it was just just common vernacular. It was something that a Christian in the United States of America would have used in their everyday speech. It was such a common and popular term because it was such a common and popular idea that entire cities were named after this concept. Just like denial is not just a river in Egypt, Providence is not just the capital in Rhode Island. I knew what I was doing when I did that, and I'm not ashamed of it at all. Let's keep going. What is Providence? By the way, someone may listen to that on the internet. I'm okay with that. Okay. The Westminster Confession defines Providence like this. It is the act wherein God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, you can't use the word in the definition, but you can in the Westminster Confession, according to the counsel of his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, stuff like that makes members like Jacob Johnson very happy. They love that. He wishes we would do that more often. For some other members in our church, we might feel like, well, that sounds good. It didn't really help me very much. So let me give you a definition for somebody like me that I think is a little bit more, uh, yeah, easy to handle, more bite-sized. Providence is the invisible hand of God working in the visible world. It's the invisible hand of God working in the visible world. Now, what's particularly relevant to us this morning is that providence is yet another way in which God is lovingly communicating with his people Israel. We know that God speaks to everyone through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. We know in particular from the book of Amos that God communicates his word to his people through his prophets. We saw that before. The Lord says, hey, I'm going to judge you, but it shouldn't catch you off guard because I've been sending prophets your way to tell you this the whole time. We know that the Lord communicates through his word. The Israelites have the law. They have the word of the Lord. Later on in salvation history, God will speak most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. But he also speaks through acts of providence. His invisible hand is moving and active in this visible world. Now, when it comes to this idea of providence, there are usually two groups of people to kind of draw a harsh uh, dichotomy here. On the one hand, you have people who just don't believe in it, right? Nature is a closed system, Everything that you see is just nature being nature. Atoms are going to collide and bounce off of each other. And it's going to look like there's, you know, a divine signature there. But that's just you interpreting it in light of your religious beliefs. Then on the other hand, way on the other side of the spectrum, you have this group that believes that literally everything is a word from God. You know, a tree does not fall down from, excuse me, a, a tree doesn't fall down from a leaf. Here we go. Uh, A leaf does not fall down from a tree in autumn and land on the ground without it being pregnant with spiritual significance for your life. God is really trying to tell you something in that moment. Now, for Christians, this this first view of providence is a no-go. We're Christians. We're not atheists. We're not deists. We believe that God is active and involved in his creation. 
But for careful thinking Christians, option number two is not much better of an option. The fact of the matter is that every fallen acorn, every seasonal cold, every natural disaster is not a word from the Lord pregnant with spiritual significance for your life. There may be a billion different reasons why something is happening around you circumstantially. And none of those reasons could be spiritual. None of them could be God is communicating to you. That doesn't mean that they're not spiritual for somebody else. It doesn't mean that God isn't using those events to speak or communicate with somebody else about something in particular. But it it may not have anything to do with you. You can think about just one example from the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, the patriarch, he was forced to go down to Egypt because uh, there was a famine in his land. Now the Bible doesn't tell us why there was a famine. It just tells us that there was a famine. It doesn't even tell us that there's any significance about, Israel, about Abraham going down to Egypt in light of this famine. It just tells us that there was a famine. Was there spiritual significance there? Maybe? I, I don't know. You know, the Bible just doesn't really tell me. Not to say that preachers won't preach it like there's spiritual significance there, but I just don't know that there is. And yet, I'm sure that God had a good reason for doing it, even if that reason didn't particularly pertain to Abraham and his life. Now, having said that, this morning's text shows us that there are very specific circumstances in which God does communicate to his people through providence and nature and circumstances. So in this morning's text, we read that over and over again, God was, teach, was talking to his people through these things in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 9, in, in verse 10, and then again in 10b, and verse 11. God is using things like plagues and famine and blight and mildew and defeat and war in order to communicate to his people, in order to call them back to repentance. Now, we're going to talk about that more in point number two, so just put a pin in that. Right now, before we do, I want us to move on down to verse 13 and just stop and look at one phrase there in light of this understanding of providence. Verse 13, it says, For behold, he who forms the mountain and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought. Here, we see that God communicates his thoughts to us. We should not blow past that. It is incredibly powerful that the God of the Bible is communicating to us. Imagine what it must be like to worship a pagan deity, or several pagan deities, likely if you were in the ancient world, who were uh, supposedly in control of things like the weather, and fertility, and warfare, and your harvest. Imagine that these gods up there in the clouds... Perhaps they're malevolent. Perhaps they're disinterested. You don't know, but you know that they're certainly distant. These gods would control your life in the most significant ways imaginable. Are you going to have food enough to survive? Well, the God of the harvest will determine. How can you know if he's happy with you? Well, you can't until the harvest fails. Then when it fails, then maybe you need to do something to try to appease him, to turn away his wrath. Maybe you need to offer a baby as a sacrifice so that your women have more fertility, as was the case with the ancient pagan god of Moloch. Or maybe you need to throw a volcano. That's number two. Maybe you need to throw a virgin into a volcano. Or maybe you need to, who knows what? That's part of the problem. It's a little bit of a guessing game. Well, friends, this is not the God of the Bible. He does not hide himself from us, move providentially through nature, and then leave it up to us to sort of guess what he wants from us. No, God reveals himself to us in various ways so that we can know his thoughts, obey his laws, and love his person. Now, let's go back to these pagan gods for a second. Let's say that they do communicate, but the only way they do is through certain mystics and seers. The only way to know whether or not you'll have victory in battle or you'll have a good harvest or whether or not your wife will miscarry is to have the seer talk to the God on your behalf and then relay that message back to you for a price, of course. Well, again, this is not the God of the Bible. Our God communicates his will to his people through his word. 
even in the Old Testament, even in ancient Israel, where God spoke pretty consistently to his people through the prophets, most of what the prophets did was just regurgitate God's law back to God's people. Remember, the prophets had two jobs. They were foretellers and foretellers. We like to think about prophets as people who predict the future, but they're not really predicting the future. God is just telling them what he's going to do in the future in light of what he said he's going to do in the past. So half of what a prophet did, if not more, was just to go back and say, hey, you remember when God said this in his law? Well, he's about to do that. He's going to do it right now. That's what Amos is doing in this morning's text. The God of the Bible communicates his will to his people through his word. But there's more. Because even in God's providence, in ancient Israel, this interpretation of these natural occurrences was not left up to a shaman or a divine mystic or seer. No, this, these acts of providence were given to all of God's people, and all of God's people should have known the law. That was the priest's job. The job of the priest, the central job, besides working in the temple and offering sacrifices, was to teach God's law to God's people. And they would have read Deuteronomy 28, which we read, maybe painstakingly, but we read this morning, every last word of. And so God's people would have known Deuteronomy 28, where he said, listen, if you don't follow me, I'm going to send curses on you. And so they should have been able to read the signs, interpret all of God's providential acts for themselves in light of what God had already communicated to them through his word. Point number two, the faithfulness of God. In today's text, each one of these acts of providence, defeat and warfare, blight and mildew, famine in the land, they're all meant to draw God's people back into covenant faithfulness with their God. God promised in Deuteronomy 28, he said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm going to love you well. And if you walk in faithfulness with me, you will know tremendous covenant blessings. But if you disobey my covenant, if you turn away from me, if you rebel against my covenant love, well, then I will discipline you. And I will discipline you severely, ultimately, to bring you back to myself. God is faithful to keep all of his promises. Faithfulness is... You know, I, I could probably point out 10 different people in this room as an example of faithfulness, right? They're, they're people who are faithful are reliable, they're steadfast, they're unwavering. You don't have to worry that some circumstance is going to come up and, and shake them or move them. You don't have to worry about them being bribed. You don't have to worry about their fear of man moving them from the position that they need to be in. And, and God is like that. And, and we depend on God being like that. We, we, we have to know that our God is a faithful God because we just don't have a chance of making it to heaven if it's not for him. If us going to heaven is dependent upon our faithfulness, we're all going to hell. Just Let me just give you one example of how much we depend on God's faithfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God's faithfulness doesn't mean you're never going to be tempted and doesn't mean that you're never going to be tempted severely. But it does mean that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now what this means is that there's no such thing for a Christian as a sin temptation in your life that will get so bad to the point where you end up losing your salvation because you've fallen so deep in sin that you've fallen away from God. And this whole reality, this, this thing that's meant to give you comfort and you assurance and you strength as you wage war against sin, it's all grounded in the attribute of God's faithfulness. And we could just go through 15 different examples of this, how like, if God is not faithful, then all is lost and we are lost. When we think about God's faithfulness, we tend to think about those little books that uh, we used to be able to get at like Lifeway and other Christian bookstores before Amazon put them all out of business, you know, but like the the little books, the 100 uh, promises of God, the unbreakable promises of God. I had one when I, 
When I first became a Christian, my grandma bought me one of those little books. She was an atheist uh, and a Catholic, and those two are not really, and that's not a contradiction in terms. And uh, she was just happy that I found religion and, you know, whatever it takes so that you're not doing drugs and robbing people, you know. So she bought me one of these little books, and I, it was great, you know. I was super thankful to be able to have it and to read it and to understand, like, man, God is so amazing. Look at all this good he's going to do me. But you don't read a whole lot of the second half of Deuteronomy 28 in those 100 unbreakable promises of God books. God promises that he will destroy you. Not, 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 not a big seller, you know. But you have to remember that God's faithfulness is not a blessings only faithfulness. His faithfulness is a faithfulness to do all that which he has promised to do in his word, including discipline his children to the utmost. And discipline is what he promises to do in his covenant with his people. That's how covenants work. You remember pocket-sized definition of covenant? And in case you don't, here we go again. A covenant is a relationship grounded in a promise. Now, covenant is kind of an older word that we don't really use anymore. It actually used to be used even in legal terms in America as recently as like 100 years ago. We, we, now we just use a different term. It also starts with a C, contract, right? But this idea of blessings and curses in connection to a contract, it's the same thing. You see it with business contracts all the time. Two businesses form a covenant with each other, and the point of this covenant or this contract is, okay, listen, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, and you're going to do what you promise you're going to do, and if we both do what we say we're going to do, we're going to be blessed. Maybe not spiritually, right, but everything's going to go well with us. We're going to make gobs of money, you know, we're going to take vacations in Tahiti, and our public, publicly traded shares are going to skyrocket, all that stuff. But if you don't keep your word in this covenant, I'm going to sue you into the dirt, and you will be cursed, right? You see the same thing implicitly in a marriage covenant, right? Even though it's not said out loud, because in a marriage covenant, it's supposed to be, I love you, you love me, we're going to stick it out, even if you're unfaithful, I'm going to be faithful to you. But there are still blessings and curses built into this idea, right? So a husband is unfaithful to his wife, you better believe that that marriage and that family will be cursed, no trust. Children end up hating you. Divorce. You lose all your money and the nasty, you know, so you just keep going down the line. But if the husband and the wife love each other and they serve each other faithfully and they sacrifice for, for each other, that family will experience the blessings of a covenant. But a covenant with God is very different than other covenants because there's a power dynamic at play, right? God is the all-powerful king of the universe, and he initiates this covenant with his people unilaterally. He didn't say, hey, Abraham, you're worshiping that moon god. What do you think about what I got going on over here? You want to come on over here and worship me? No. He says, hey, you're going to be mine. And you're going to be, have a people. And I'm going to be your god. And you're going to be my people. And that's the way it's going to be. And I'm going to love you. But I'm also going to discipline you. Now, God obviously knew that his people were not going to be faithful, and that's why he has these measures of discipline. You should know that they are not meant to be punitive in nature. They're meant to be disciplinary in nature. So there's a difference between a bully who just wants to beat up a kid on the playground to watch him suffer. There's a difference between that and a parent who spanks their child in hopes of making them, uh, building in them a stronger character, giving them a chance of success later on in life through suffering at a younger age. Right? The former example is from Satan. The latter example is how God treats his covenant children. So we see in today's text that like a stern but loving father, God has been providentially working through nature to discipline his children and to call them back to himself. He's been giving them the covenant curses that he promised to give them in Deuteronomy 28. I don't know if you noticed, but everything that we read in this morning's text, it's drawn directly from what God told the people of Israel that he would do to them in Deuteronomy 28. So let's just walk through it together, okay? Uh, there are seven things here that God says that he uh, has done to his people, but I think you could probably consolidate like the first four of them under famine. But let's just 
go, th- go through it one at a time. We're just going to kind of walk through the text here. I have a bunch of notes. I'm probably not going to use them. Let's just walk through the text. Verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Uh, that's something that we would be happy about. You know, oh, a, a, a free teeth cleaning. You know, that's great. Uh, but that's not what this refers to. God is saying uh, there's no food in your teeth because you haven't been eating. What he's saying is, is uh, I gave you famine in the land. Then he says, and lack of bread in all your places, saying the same thing, yet you did not return to me. So I, I was trying to discipline you, and you didn't return to me. I also, I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. So three months before the harvest is the absolute worst time that the rain could stop falling on the land. It would completely destroy the crops, and it would mean that a lot of people would go hungry come harvest time. But God says, I withheld it from you. And in case you were wondering, like, how would the people know that this is not just like a, a, normal, uh, a normal lack of rain that you would typically experience in the ancient Near East? Listen to how God says he did it. He says, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. Right? Have you guys ever uh, been in the place where you can see where the rain stops? It's a pretty cool experience. I saw it a lot in the jungle just because I was in the rain a lot there. Uh, God is saying, you know how you feel like there's something amazing about that? Well, I'm telling you, I did that and I amplified it. I just, I would like cordon off a city and I would give it rain and then I wouldn't give these other cities around it rain so that you would look at that and go, huh, that's not normal. God must be doing something here. Then he goes on and he says in verse 8, So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me. They weren't satisfied, right? And that lack of satisfaction, that, that thirst that they were experiencing, that it was supposed to make them go, okay, what am, what am I supposed to be satisfied with? Why is this happening? Verse 9, I struck you with blight, and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me. So here we have two things, blight and mildew. This was likely caused by the Sirocco winds, which I don't particularly understand, but apparently it's a phenomenon in the ancient, ancient Near East where winds would flow in from various directions and bring in an abnormal amount of heat and humidity when there wasn't supposed to be any, and it would cause blight and mildew, and all the crops would fail. It was like a once- every, you know, 10-year phenomenon kind of thing. And the Lord is saying, listen, I sent that on you. I did that. You know, you should ask yourself, why now? Why is this happening now? And then he says he also sent locusts. We don't really think a lot about locusts in America. We don't, we don't talk about them very much. But if you were in the ancient Near East, you would know that this was a terribly dreadful thing. Uh, clouds of locusts, up to 10 billion locusts strong, would show up and they would completely obliterate everything in their path. I'm talking like 40 miles at a time just wiped away because locusts don't just eat the harvest. They eat anything that's organic material. They would eat your leather. They would eat your clothes. You guys remember from the American Gospel where I talk about the ants and how they had invaded and how they were eating up everything in our cabin. They were eating holes in our clothes. They were eating our mosquiteros. Or mosquito nets, they even ate the earbuds off of my earplugs because they could. That is what the locusts would do. And they would come, they would be so heavy and so thick in the land that not only would they eat everything and destroy it, but like the, all their dead carcasses would fall in the river and they would stop up the river and so people wouldn't be able to get water and they would have to clear them out or go to a different... It was just horrendous. And God is saying, I did this so that you would return to me. And then you see again the refrain, yet you did not return to me. I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Pestilence is just another word for plague. So God is saying, I sent health issues among you. What kind? Well, the kind that you know what kind, the kind that I sent to Egypt when you were slaves there. I'm sending that back on you. Then he turns to warfare in the second half. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. The stench of your camp means normally when a battle would be fought, it would be sufficiently far away so that, you know, uh, the people in the city wouldn't have to see the blood and the guts and the gore and the violence. 
uh, war has a very particular smell to it, even more so ancient warfare. Just dead bodies lying around everywhere, fecal matter being burned. It was just not a pleasant experience. And God is saying that I allowed the war to get so close to your home that you could smell it from your front door. And I did it so that you would return to, return to me. I mean, yeah, you didn't. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. So basically God is saying, uh, when he's referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, he's saying, I utterly obliterated you. How? Well, if you think about a brand that's in the fire, that's, you were burning, you were being completely consumed by the fires, and yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Any one of these phenomena, any one of these acts of providence should have caused Israel to pause, to do a little bit of self-examination. This reminds me of my friend Sean, who's just been on my mind a lot lately. This is probably like the second time I've talked about him publicly, but uh, Sean is a guy that I grew up with. Uh, His mom and my mom used to do drugs together. He and I used to do drugs together. We used to fight together. We used to sell drugs together. And... uh, I recently saw him again after not having seen him for about a year. Prior to that, I hadn't seen him for maybe a decade. I saw him in the county jail. I was teaching a Bible study. He comes in. Hey, how's it going? You're not looking good. He's about to do life in prison for killing someone, okay? Now, when I, when I think about this text and I think about Sean, I just think about the, the number of different ways that he was warned of this impending doom. I think about the probation officers, the parole officers, the judges, his mom, his grandma. I think about this sweet little old lady named Linda who was the apartment manager who used to sit me and Sean down when we were like 15 years old and tell us, if you boys don't get your lives together, you're going to end up dead or in prison. You know? And then I haven't seen him in a decade, but I know that different people have been speaking this truth into his life in various ways over the course of those 10 years. I think about the last time that I saw him before seeing him in jail at a Mexican restaurant here in town. I saw him there with his wife. I said, hey, how are things going? He says, great. I'm only selling a little bit of drugs now. You know, No, not great. And I pull Sean aside and I say, Sean, if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to end up dead. Well, you're going to end up in prison for the rest of your life. No, no, I got it under control. I got it under control. But now it's obvious he doesn't. But the Lord had been communicating to him in 10,000 different ways, even punishing him and disciplining him, saying, listen, one day the hammer's going to drop and you're not going to be able to undo it, so pay attention to these signs that I'm putting in your life. I think we need to pay that same kind of attention brothers and sisters. I'm not saying that every tree that falls in our yard or branch that falls on our truck, I'm not hurt about that, uh, or any, every last little thing that happens in our life is a sign from God calling us to repentance, but I'm saying some things in our lives may be signs from God calling us to repentance. Some relational difficulties, problems at work, you know, your own emotional struggles, The Lord may be trying to communicate to you in a number of different ways, including through the regular preaching of his word, trying to tell you that, listen, something bad is about to happen. You should pay attention. You should stop and consider and just ask yourself, is my life lining up with God's word? And if it's not, where should I repent? Uh, I want to take a quick moment to make sure that we address the, the, the main way that people might misapply and misunderstand this text, okay? Uh, we have talked ad infinitum. Oh man, I tried to do Latin on the on the fly. We've talked a lot, maybe too much, about how the old covenant and the new covenant relate to each other in this church. We've talked about it a ton, and I'm not going to rehash it all right now. Okay, but what you need to know is that the old covenant people of Israel, who were a spiritual, political and ethnic people who had a particular geographic space given to them for their governmental rule, uh, the way that God brings his covenant curses upon them is different than he might communicate to us providentially today or even discipline us as the Christian people of God and certainly as American citizens. The main thing that I want us to understand is that we are not God's ethnic and political people any longer. 
and we do not have our own separate geographic space from the rest of the world, despite what that guy wearing the Israel star pendant on his suit after church might tell you, okay? We do not have our own geographic space, and so we should not expect the Lord to discipline us through these acts of providence as covenant curses in the same way that he did through the people of Israel. We should not expect to have agriculture-based, fertility-based, warfare-based, disciplinary measures from the Lord, either as a Christian church or as a secular nation. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't sometimes speak to us, either individually or as a church, through acts of providence. He probably does. But your car breaking down might just be that you forgot to change the oil. Amber. Huh? Okay. We also know, and if it feels like I'm qualifying this to death, I am. I'm sorry, there's just no other way to do it. I want to make sure we're perfectly clear that we give equal weight to all of the the emphasis that God places on various aspects of the subject. We also know from the story of Jonah that God does punish secular nations, right? The Lord sent Jonah to the Ninevites, the Assyrians. He says, go preach to them because I'm about to destroy them because of how wicked they are, right? So it's not impossible that God could very much come and destroy the United States of America, a secular nation, for the evil that we practice in our midst. But I think And here's the main takeaway. So if if that last like three minutes kind of moves you on over into dreamland, come on back to me, okay? I think we should be super slow to ever say that some act of providence is God's divine judgment. So slow, in fact, that perhaps it's probably just best not to do it at all. You know, another hurricane hits Florida. Let's just not say it's because of all the gay people there. That's probably the worst thing in the world you could say as a Christian in light of a terrible tragedy like that. I say it so frankly because people say it so frankly, and I just hope that we are more careful and nuanced as members of this church. The United States is not ancient Israel, so let's not confuse the two. Point number three, the fear of God. Now, we're transitioning here from what God has done because of who he is to what God will do what he's telling his people, what he will do because of who he is. And what God will do, according to verse 13, is give his people an encounter with him. Look there. Actually, it's in verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Initially, this might sound like a good thing. I think if you were to go out and ask any person, whether they're a Christian or not, hey, if God says, I'm going to come and we're going to have a face-to-face encounter, what would you think of that? And I think most people are like, oh, great, awesome. In so doing, they would probably show that they haven't really read much of their Bible, where anytime somebody comes face-to-face with a holy God as an unholy person, what happens is they kind of melt down at a molecular level, right? They just have a complete come apart in light of God's holiness. And I think... For the people of Israel, they in particular might expect this encounter with God to be a good thing, right? We remember, we've seen, we saw last week that they were making up for their injustice and their corruption with extra religiosity, uh, bring in tithes three times a week, offer more offerings and more sacrifices, you know, you're just going to try to make up for all your sinful ways by doing more things for God and being extra religious, So they might think, man, I've been doing a lot for God. I've been bringing in these tithes. I've been offering these sacrifices, huh? I've been bringing in those free will offerings. I don't call it free will offerings for nothing. I didn't have to do it, but I did it, God. So they might expect that God would be like, oh, man, I'm so happy to see you guys. You've done so much for me. You've really gone out of your way to serve me. But nothing could be further from the truth. Look at verse 13. For behold... He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Now that verse may not seem particularly dreadful for you, but you should know that uh, most scholars think that this was a hymn 
sung by people in the Old Testament, sung by the Israelites. We don't have a record of it anywhere, but when you look at the way like all of the psalms are written, especially the, the hymnic psalms, uh, these, these verses are written like in the exact same way. And it seems like this would have been a hymn that people would sing, particularly soldiers, as they go into battle, right? So imagine a bunch of soldiers, they're about to go to war, and maybe they're a little bit nervous, so uh, for the esprit de corps, to get everybody on board on the same page, they come together and they sing this song about who is God. Well, he is the creator, he's the communicator, he's the, he's the sustainer, he is the powerful Lord of the earth. And then it finishes the stanza, it says, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. God of hosts is a title that refers to God as like a general of the armies, the commander of the celestial armies of heaven, the God of the army of the angels, okay? And so just imagine just 10,000 troops, nervous, getting ready for battle, singing this chorus out with one loud, strong voice. This is our God. He is our commander. We will have victory. But the sin of Israel dumps this hymn on its head. Because of Israel's sin and its refusal to return back to the Lord, Amos is quoting this hymn back to the people in judgment. And he's saying, you're right. The Lord God, Yahweh, is the all-powerful God of all of creation. He is the commander of the heavenly armies. And now he is going to wage war against you. So prepare to meet your God. If this seems overly harsh or overly heavy, uh, I've got two responses to that. Number one, especially in light of our scripture reading this morning, Deuteronomy 28 is a super duper heavy text for us to read together corporately. I understand that. I feel it. Friends, this is not a fairy book. This book is not a book written by men. This book was not given to you to make you feel good about yourself. This book was given to you to tell you the truth. And all of the history that it records is history having to do with sinful people who have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. So on the one hand, I just want to say, I understand it and I feel it, and this is just the reality of life in a fallen world. As God communicates with us, he has to communicate with us about some very serious, harsh, and heavy things, including severe discipline. It's like a parent. Being a parent, I don't know any parent who's a good parent who likes disciplining their children, whether you think that involves spanking or a severe timeout. You know, it doesn't matter. No parent likes to discipline their child. No parent likes it when their child glares at them or says, I hate you, and slams the door to their room. Nobody likes that. But that is part of being a parent. And part of being a Christian means we don't escape the hard things that God has to say. And it does mean that when we understand the Bible rightly, there's a lot more hard, dark, scary stuff than we would like to admit. And that's comforting to me. It's encouraging to me because I think it is perfectly in line with the reality of this fallen world. The second thing I want to say to this feeling that uh, God coming to wage war against his own people might, might seem a little bit harsh, is if, if, we, if we stop there, then we've kind of missed the main point of the text. Because five points, five different times in this text, the Lord has ended his little spiel on discipline by saying, yet you have not returned to me. The heart of the Lord for his people is not to destroy them. God is not up in heaven just, you know, like Mr. Burns twiddling his fingers together, waiting for the opportunity to do evil and bring destruction upon his people. Not that God would ever do evil. You understand what I'm saying? God is doing these things in order to bring his people back to himself. And he says, I've told you over and over and over and over again. I've said it this way. I've said it that way. I've said it this way. I've said it that way. And yet you will not return to me. And that's part of the reason why the discipline is so severe because the people won't hear anything else because of their sin. When we stop and think about that, I think we should really, 
and Michael hit on this in his pastoral prayer, we should really be praising the Lord for his patience rather than questioning him for his judgment. Consider how patient God has been with his people. Consider how patient God has been with you. There's no reason you're not in hell right now other than the fact that God has been extremely patient with you. There's no reason I'm up here as your pastor other than the fact that God has been extremely patient with me. I'm an idiot, and he tells me so. Sometimes I don't listen when he says it this way, so he says it that way, and then he says it that way. And sometimes when I don't listen, he comes and he like raps me on the head, and he says, you're being an idiot, stop. And he does the same thing for all of us. This should have some serious significance for the way that you treat other people in your life, particularly other members of this church, right? Just think about how patient God has been with his people. Think about how patient God has been with you. How can you not extend that same patience to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, I know that so-and-so did such-and-such, and that's that thing that they always do, and it's driving you crazy, and it's inconsiderate, and it gets under your skin, and Christians shouldn't do that. And I'm not saying you should never say something like that to them. You should never rebuke them or correct them in love. But even if you do that, when you do that, there should be a tone there of like, man, God has been so patient with me. I got something I want to help you out with, and I'm going to do it in patience. It also should mean that, listen, if God has said that his people need to change and he's told them that in like five or six different ways, you should be open to the possibility that the one conversation where you told one person in your life that they needed to change and you only said it one way, that it might not be enough. You know, you might need to say it this way or that way. And you know what? Even at the end of the day, even though you can't cause a person to change and even though your methodology won't uh, make them see their sin, who knows whether or not the Lord may use it. You don't know that. You, your job is just to communicate the truth and to be patient as you do, and to be creative, and to find different ways to speak to different people in your life who may need to change. We do this corporately in matters of church discipline, right? We try to imitate the patience of God. Matthew 18 tells us the steps of church discipline. One-on-one, if a brother doesn't listen, what do you do? You go get another brother, or another brother or two, and then you go back to them. And if they don't listen then, then you gather the whole church, and you get the whole church involved. That right there shows uh, some creativity in the way we communicate to people. But what's interesting there is that the Lord Jesus doesn't give us a timeline. And so in the life of this church, when we've had to excommunicate people, we don't go, oh, Billy sinned Monday, he's going to be excommunicated by Friday. I think our last, last excommunication took, if I'm not mistaken, 18 months from like the first day where we thought, okay, some church discipline probably needs to be brought about here for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of this person's soul to the day that we officially as a church excommunicated that person. And in the meantime, while we were exercising patience and speaking the, truth to love, speaking the truth and love to that person, we did so in a number of different ways. You know, one-on-one, small group. We did it through letters. We did it through sharing Bible verses. You know, we were just trying to be as creative and as patient as possible to draw that person back to the Lord. And the Lord is still in the business of calling men back to himself. But he's not just calling his people Israel anymore. The people of Israel no longer exist. Now he is calling men from every tongue and tribe and nation. He's calling them into the church. Acts 17, Peter says this, 1730, God commands all people everywhere. So not just Jews. That's what he's thinking of here, okay? Not just Jews not just as covenant people, God commands all people everywhere, all the nations, to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So the day is coming when it's not merely covenant discipline that will be enacted, but the final judgment, when the hammer drops completely. This is known as the day of the Lord in Scripture, where we will meet God face to face. His day is yet to come. In the meantime, God is lovingly, patiently, creatively calling men back to himself before it's too late. He's communicating his love to the world in a thousand different ways. And the main way that he communicated it 
was by sending, sending his beloved son. And Jesus came and what he did was he, he called men to repentance because he loved them. And he said, before it's too late, come home. And then after he died and paid the price for our sins, he sent us as his disciples out to go call men to repentance and to bring them home before it's too late, before the hammer drops. Now, uh, someone might respond to part of that gospel message of come home. They're like, okay, that's good. Because God loves you, right on board with that before it's too late. And that, that gives some of us pause, right? We feel like, well, then that's fear-based, right? We don't want to evangelize people and, and try to scare them into heaven, do we? Well, on the one hand, I want to say uh, it depends on what you mean. On, the one, on, on one hand, maybe I wouldn't want to try to scare somebody into heaven. I don't think that's possible. But on the other hand, I do want people to be afraid of that which they should be afraid of. That's the point of this morning's text. God is trying to get his people to be afraid of that which they should be afraid of. We're not trying to implant unreasonable and irrational fears. God's not trying to use fear as a way to control the masses, as a way to manipulate people in a cult-like fashion. There's a very real danger and he's saying, the danger is coming. You should be afraid. And as Christians, one of the reasons why we tell people about God's wrath and the doctrine of hell is because we believe that there's a very real danger. And we want people to be appropriately afraid. Because the day is coming when the Lord of hosts will march on this fallen world with his heavenly armies. Some of us will receive this profession, excuse me, his procession with arms wide open. We will weep and rejoice that God has come to save us. But others will know nothing but fear in that day. And so this morning I want to call on anyone here who may not know the Lord, young or old, to fear God today in your heart so that you don't have to fear him for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with hearts full of joy, but a heavy joy, a joy that uh, can exist outside of this realm of justice and judgment in this world. And we pray that you would help us to reflect that, that balance of joy as we go back out into the world, Lord. Uh, help us to delight in your Son, Jesus Christ, in a way that's attractive, but also in a way that communicates the very real uh, coming day, Lord. Help us to believe that in our bones and help it to come off of us in waves so that people might see your son, Jesus Christ, know him, and be saved by him. Amen. Stand and sing together.